Take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9. You say, Pastor, it's Palm Sunday. Why would we turn to the Old Testament? We'll show you in just a moment what took place here, this great prophecy. This message today we're going to focus on focuses on a coronation. In just a few weeks, the United Kingdom, they'll have a coronation on May the 6th. It will be at Westminster Abbey for King Charles III. It will be his coronation. It's a ceremony, a process of acknowledging his royalty. It's a process, a ceremony of laying upon his head a crown. And it's a process or a ceremony of giving him all of the power and all of the privilege that's due to the office in which he holds. And he will have his coronation. His mother who just passed away not too long ago, she had a coronation. The kings and the queens all the way back into the 1500s even, you'll find evidence of the coronations in the United Kingdom. You'll go to the Old Testament in 2 Kings and you'll find a coronation of King Jehu. Coronations have always been part of the process, the, the pomp and the circumstance awarded and given to one of great power and privilege, a sovereign. And Jesus Christ, uh, He is King of kings according to Scripture. He is Lord of lords. There is no other sovereign like our God. There is no other Lord like our Lord. And there is no other king like our king. Can we all come to that conclusion today that Jesus is above every single solitary sovereign to ever live on this earth? He is king of kings. And just like uh, king Charles III had a coronation, and just as King Jehu in 2 Kings had a coronation, Jesus Christ also had a coronation. Uh, his coronation, though, was the coronation of all coronations. It was so different. It was so specific. And even 450 to 500 years before he was even born, the prophet Zechariah prophesied and preached very specific details about what would take place when the Messiah had his coronation. Go to the ninth chapter of Zechariah. Go to the ninth verse. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So here we have a very obvious depiction of the coronation of Messiah, of the King of Kings. This is the coronation that for 500 years before Jesus was even born, the Jews, those who were searching, the righteous Jews who were looking for their Messiah to come, this was the expectation held to the spoken tradition, the oracle of God, that the Messiah would come in this particular way and he would have to come into the city of Jerusalem to be announced as king, as Messiah, and as Lord. Again, you can find a similar coronation in 2 Kings of King Jehu. But this coronation that Zechariah is prophesying is going to be the coronation. This is the one. 
This is the one that will change everything forever. And it's not even the coronation that Jesus will uh, enthrone himself to for time and eternity. This was a specific coronation for a specific time and for a specific purpose. And you say, Pastor, why are we talking about coronation on Palm Sunday? Why are we not talking about crucifixion? Because church, you cannot have crucifixion without coronation. You cannot have Calvary without Jesus riding in to Jerusalem. You cannot have the Garden of Gethsemane and the weight of man's sin coming upon our Lord without him first making his trip up into Jerusalem before crucifixion and before Calvary and before betrayal, there must be coronation. And our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Sovereign, our Messiah, our God, our Jesus had his coronation in Jerusalem. So let's really understand Palm Sunday. Let's really put it into perspective and let's really set the scene because it's so important for us to understand what really happened on this day. As Jesus entered the holy city, he's entering Jerusalem and really it's nearing the end, the culmination of everything that he's done to get to that place. Jesus knew full well that his entry into Jerusalem would end with his death. You must understand that, that as Jesus is making his trip out of Bethany, out of Bethpage, out of the Galilee area to come to Jerusalem, he knows what's coming. He knows that there's torture coming. He knows the pain that's coming. He's all God and all man. He knew exactly what would take place. He even knows that Judas is about to betray him. He knows what Pilate is going to say. He even knows the names of the executioners who will nail him to your tree and to mine. He knew what he was getting into. He knew what the consequence would be. And to ever say that Jesus was caught off guard or that his arrest came at his surprise is simply just not so. Jesus Jesus knew full well what was coming when he came to Jerusalem. It was not just coronation that was on his mind. It was not just the opportunity to be seen and to be loved on and lavished. Rather, he knew that the coronation would come to crucifixion. Jesus knew and he did it anyway. You can read in uh, Luke chapter 9, you can read the, the transfiguration of Jesus and there on top of Mount Hermon you have God the Father in the Shekinah glory and Elijah and Moses and Peter and James and John in this climactic moment of power and glory and already God the Father has given unto his son Jesus a down payment if you will on his soon coming death that would be accomplished where? In Jerusalem. Jesus knew what he was doing when he made his entry and he knew what was coming. This was his coronation. And everything that you read in the Gospels leads up to this place. Everything that you read, every moment captured in Gospel comes to this place. Luke chapter 19 verse number 10. This is a great way to summarize the motion and the trajectory of our Lord. It says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And now the time has come. This is the time and this is the place to secure my salvation. Am I talking to a Baptist church this morning? To secure my salvation. If you're saved, you can say, my salvation. All of that energy, all of that motion, all of that movement towards Jerusalem, going to coronation and then to crucifixion. 
was for you and for me. And now he had come to the time and to the place where he was going to secure your freedom and do it on your cross. So Palm Sunday, and we'll explain why it's called that in a moment, but it's often what's referred to the beginning of Passion Week or the final seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And really, Palm Sunday was the beginning of the end. But it's not the beginning of the end of Jesus. It's the beginning of the end of his earthly ministry. Do you realize that even today, right now, in this moment, the the body that the disciples saw after Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven, where he showed Thomas and the unbelievers his scars, that that same body that ascended to heaven that day is the same body that's coming back for me. Jesus is still in that same physical form to this day, and he will come in that same physical form. Praise God, Jesus is still alive and well and on the throne, and everything comes to this moment. This is the intersection. This is where he can say, Father, I I know why I'm here, but could it be different? Can can I just go a different route here? Do I have to go to the cross? Do I have to die? If Jesus was going to change his mind, this is the place he's going to do it. But he didn't. He kept on his journey. Luke 19, go to the 29th verse. We're going to follow Jesus now his process of coronation. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Beth Page and Bethany. Those are places you can still go and see. We'll be there in just a few months. At the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man set. Loose him and bring him hither. And so you have to understand what's being told to his disciples. I want you to go into the city. I want you to go to the entrance of the city. And I want you to find an unbroken colt that's not bridled, that a man's never sat on. And I want you to untie him and I want you to bring him to me. Can you imagine how funny that might sound? You want me to go into this city and take a colt that does not belong to us. You want me to untie him and you want me to bring him to you? Yes, that's exactly what I want you to do. And so they go and they untie the colt and the owners of the colt, as they should, uh, they begin to question them. And so the disciples respond to these people who own the cult with what Jesus had already told them to say. Jesus had given them the words to respond to the owners of the cult. This is in the the 31st verse. Look what it says. And if any man ask you, why do ye loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent their way and found even as he said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the little donkey, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. I've got to take him. The Lord needs him. And here's what's so amazing. The owners of the colt were okay with it. They they were satisfied with that answer. And they let the disciples go. They didn't fight. They didn't scream. They didn't holler. They didn't demand to be paid. They said, Okay, take him. Now, could you imagine going up into Leicester in Sandy Mush and finding a donkey tied up to somebody's barn. And if you're from Sandy Mush, you know what I'm talking about. And just walking up to your donkey and untying him and walking down, going towards Leicester Highway. 
How'd that work out? It wouldn't go good. God divinely set this thing up. If you'll just go and be obedient and faithful to do what I told you to do and say what I told you to say, I'll take care of the rest. And so God already has prepared the hearts of the owners. The disciples obeyed. They say what they were told to say and everything works out. And then they walk this little cult back to Jesus. And amazingly, these owners are satisfied. Verse 35 says, and they brought him to Jesus. And they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. Your Savior, your Messiah, your Sovereign, your Lord did not mount a majestic white steed. He did not mount a beautiful, solid black Arabian horse. He had no chariot. He had no band. He had no arsenal. All he had was this little donkey and the cloak of his disciples, and it was good enough for his coronation. What a heart for people. What a heart for men who had nothing. And he was satisfied with this being enough for coronation. And the coronation now is set. The mode of transportation is very important. But the fact that this little baby colt, this little baby donkey is going to be part of this coronation already proves that the prophecy preached and spoken 500 years before Jesus is even born. It is so proves to me and to you that the word of God is inerrant, infallible, holy, and inspired. You couldn't keep that up and you could not make that life work out that many years later if your life depended on it. But God in all of his sovereignty and power and control had it set up before worlds were even made that there would be a colt tied up ready to go for the coronation. Coronation's ready. It's set. But now let's turn our attention to those around Jesus at his coronation. This is so important. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, will give you a depiction, a story of this coronation. They have an account to give. And all of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell different elements they all share different perspective and angles. And let me just say this. There are skeptics and liberal scholars who like to take the different perspectives of the gospel where Matthew said one thing and John said another. And it's not that they're contradicting each other. It's that they are being human and sharing the story divinely canonized in Scripture for us. Uh, if I was to tell you a story or if we were all to go to Dollywood tomorrow, and we all saw the same things, and we all rode the same rides, and we even heard the same person sing a song or tell a story, we would all have our take, our perspective on what really happened. The fact that there are different opinions and perspectives and different stories and different takes in the Gospels is just more proof that your Bible, again, is an errant, infallible, holy, and inspired because God used four different men with four different perspectives to write down the same thing just with different details. And that's exactly what we find. John chapter 12 It'll be on your screen if you don't want to turn. But let's look at some of these different details. And let's not be afraid of different details. Let's embrace them and, and take them for what they are. The 12th chapter of the Gospel of John, the 12th verse, it says, On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him. This is for his coronation. And cried, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. 
Okay, that's a great perspective. And here's much of what you get for Palm Sunday. But then if you go to Mark chapter 11, again, it'll be on your screen. This is the eighth verse. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. So Mark mentions that there were tree branches, and there were. But, but John wants you to know that not only were they tree branches, they weren't acacia tree branches. They weren't cedars of Lebanon branches. They weren't even pine branches. They were palm branches. Mark tells you there were branches, but John the Beloved tells you there were palm branches that were taken off trees, some in hands waving Hosanna, others strawed on the way so that the Messiah would have something for his little colt to walk on top of. Why would John the Beloved want you and me to know? Why would God the Holy Ghost want John to include in his depiction of what he saw that not only were there tree branches, but there were palm branches? Because in that day, the palm had two meanings that were so symbolic and powerful, everyone in town would have known what a palm branch means. There's two very strong symbols in this branch. The first is that of victory. The palm, it means victory. The second meaning is peace. So when every, every time somebody would grab a palm off the tree and, and wave it in their hands or lay it on the ground, they were, they were signifying that whatever this event is that's happening, Whatever this coronation is all about, whatever it's bringing with it, there are two things that we can be absolutely sure of that this coronation brings with it. And it's victory and it's peace. And they didn't know this at the time. Many in the crowd didn't know this. But what they did not know was that Jesus was going to secure at the cross for you and for me my victory and my peace. And if you know Jesus, and better yet, if Jesus knows you, then you know peace himself and you know victory himself and in him because of what he accomplished on the cross, there is victory and peace. John said, yeah, they were tree branches, but reader of scripture, they were palm branches and we could spend the rest of the day and preach our liver loose on victory and peace in the palm. Amen. I may come back and preach that again someday, but the victory and the peace of the palm. But let's keep going. Let's keep looking. Luke 19 verse 37. Here's what you've got to see. This is probably the most important different detail that you'll find in the gospel. Luke 19, 37, here it is. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, if you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. As I read this, it's playing in your mind. You're coming up out of Bethany, out of Bethpage. You're cresting now on the backside of the Mount of Olives and you're getting ready to make your final descent into Jerusalem. I might even say that probably into the Essene quarter of Jerusalem. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. That is to say, as he was drawing near already on the way down, there was a multitude with him. Two different crowds here. 
Mark's already told us about a crowd that was already in Jerusalem. They had come for the feast. They were just being good Jews. They were doing what they knew to do. This was the time. The calendar fell here. Passover's coming. We come for the feast. We're in Jerusalem. But now there's talk, there's chatter that there's a Messiah coming and that there's a coronation that's coming. And in that moment that they hear this, they go, oh, I don't know who he is. I don't know if I've ever laid eyes on him, but there's a real talk in the town that this Jesus of Nazareth, that, that he might actually be the Messiah. And, and as Jesus comes, the multitude joins in. And Mark tells us that it's the group that has palm in their hand. But then notice what Luke says. The multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen. Two different groups here with two different perspectives. You've got the group in Jerusalem with the palms who were already in Jerusalem anyway. And then you've got a group that's following Jesus up out of Galilee, following behind Him, coming into Jerusalem. They're already with Him as they come up over the Mount of Olives. So the ones in Jerusalem were noted to be the ones crying out, Hosanna. These are the ones in Jerusalem with palm branches in their hands and they're crying Hosanna and they're laying the palm in the road for Jesus to make His entry into the holy city. Now, let's talk about the word Hosanna because it will explain for you better what Palm Sunday really means. When we take our palm and we shout Hosanna, Hosanna, what immediately comes to my heart and my mind is a, a cry of praise and honor and adoration. Hosanna, Hosanna. But if I take that word Hosanna and I go back, listen now, to what was actually being said that day, you would not have heard the words Hosanna in Jerusalem. They don't speak English. They speak Hebrew. So what words were they saying or what words were they saying that means Hosanna? And what really does Hosanna mean? Psalm 118.25 is the greatest depiction of this word. That verse reads this. It says, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Prosperity or rescue. So the Hebrew words that have been spoken that day were Yasha Anna. Say those words with me. Yasha Anna. You would not have heard in the streets of Jerusalem, Hosanna, Hosanna. You would have heard Yasha Anna. Yasha Anna. And as they're waving their palm branches, the words that they're actually saying are, Save me now. Deliver me now, I beseech thee. Save me, deliver me. Save me, deliver me. The, the crowd in Jerusalem had come to a place where they knew that uh, something special was happening. There was enough chat, there was enough talk, there was enough prospect that this Jesus who was of Nazareth could actually be the Messiah. And as he's coming through, they take the palms off the trees and they begin to cry out, Yasha, Anna, save me, I beseech thee. Rescue me, please deliver me. It's two groups of people with two different perspectives. So then why then? 
Did the group that was coming with Jesus, stay with me now, you've got a group in Jerusalem, they've got palms, they're crying, Yasha, Anna. Now you've got a group that's already with Jesus and we're ascending over the Mount of Olives and we're getting ready to come into Jerusalem. But what were those people saying? If they were not crying out, Hosanna, then what were they saying? Verse 38 of Luke 19. It says, saying, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 37 says that these are disciples. These are followers. These are people who know who Jesus is and they're praising God not on the prospect, listen now, not on the prospect of what he might be able to do, but rather from the perspective of what he's already done because they were rejoicing and praising God for what Jesus had already done for them. So then I ask you, students of the word of God, who would it be, who could it be coming up out of Galilee following Jesus into Jerusalem for his coronation. Who would be those people? Go back to the gospels and look at all Jesus had accomplished that we just have access to. There are so many other things that we don't know that he did, but look at the things we do know. So who could be in this crowd? Who could be crying out? I know what Jesus is. I know who Jesus is because he touched me. Could it be that the woman with the issue of blood who bled for all those years, who was down and destitute, broken, dirty, looking for hope at every turn, and then Jesus walks by and just the hem of his garment heals her saves her, restores her? Could it be that she's in the crowd? Could it be that blind Bartimaeus, the beggar who was told to shut up, to stop crying out, to stop asking for help? Could it be that blind Bartimaeus who was made whole that day, could it be that he's in the crowd? I know what Jesus did for me. He opened my eyes so that I could see. Could it be that the young boy with the loaves and the fishes who saw Jesus take his lunch and feed thousands of people, is he in this crowd? Is he marching up the Mount of Olives saying, I know what he did. I saw it with my own eyes. There are people here with me who still have baskets left over from what Jesus did. Could it be that Lazarus that was dead in Bethany with Mary and Martha, his sister, and all those unbelieving Jews were in this crowd saying, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I've seen it firsthand. I don't have to have a palm. I don't have to cry for salvation because I've already got it. I already have peace. I already have victory. I know what it's been to have nothing, but I don't need to cry out, Yasha, Anna. I can cry out, glory to God, peace on earth, goodwill, torment. I know him personally. I was able to testify to what God did for me personally. Two groups of people, two different perspectives at the coronation of our king. Here's my question to you, and this is where it gets real. This is where you just need to go ahead and take your church face and throw it behind you. This is where it's just you and me and the Holy Ghost of God in the privacy of your own heart. If you were there today, and if Jesus was coming to downtown Asheville and he was going to make his triumphal entry into our city and his little colts tied up in Canton, we're going to walk him down I-40 all the way to the exit. What's your position? Where are you at? 
Are you trying your best to live out your religious exercise? Have you made your way today to church just to keep doing what you know to do to check the box? To try to be good enough to make it to heaven? Maybe the preacher will notice me. Maybe he'll like me. And maybe we'll have a relationship and, and it'll be good. God will be good with me. If I give enough money and if I'm faithful enough, if I just show up and if I'm seen, if I sing in the choir, if I volunteer, it'll be good enough. And you're caught in the religious actions of the Jews that were in Jerusalem who had to cut down palm branches, who were begging for salvation, begging for rescuing, begging for restoration, and who did not know peace and did not know victory. That's why they had to wave palms. Or... Are you one who can follow in behind and let your king ride out front while you follow closely behind him singing his praises for what he's already done in your life? Where are you? Who are you? Are you a disciple? Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you, do you come to a place today where you have nothing to offer when it comes to what God has done for your life? Do you have to watch other people worship? Do you have to watch other people believe? Do you have to watch other people be consistent to God's house? Because you're cut off from peace, you're cut off from victory, and you're cut off from your own story because the truth is you don't know who Jesus is. And you're standing in Jerusalem, you're present you look like a Jew, you talk like a Jew, you act like a Jew. You know what to say, when to say it. But if you had to be honest today, you'd have to take a palm branch from the tree and cry out, Yasha, on me. I, I need to be saved. Jesus, I, I need rescue. Jesus, I'm tired of living this double life. I'm tired of all the pain and the hurt and the guilt. I have no peace. I have no victory. Yasha, Anna, and save me. There's nothing wrong with having this in your hand. It's one of the greatest places you can be. If you'll just cry out and in faith believing, he can do the rest. Someone can help me on the piano as we close. And to the ones that have your experience, you know what God did for you. You have the moment. Some of you even have the date and the time. I know when God saved me. I know when God changed my life. But somewhere along the journey, on the way up the Mount of Olives or somewhere in Bethany or Bethpage, before we got to Jerusalem, you got hurt. You got tired. You got weary and well-doing. And you should be right behind the little donkey walking up the hill. But you're four miles back. And you might actually be hurt. You may have fallen and twisted your ankle. You may have a spiritual injury. You may be all chugged up with hurt and pain of things that happen along the road. And it's been a long time, listen to me now, it's been a long time since the master who's right out in front of you has heard you say anything good about him. 
When was the last time you opened up your mouth and say, Lord, thank you. Jesus, I appreciate you. Holy Ghost, thank you for coming by my way that day and saving me. I rejoice in who you are and what you are. When was the last time you looked around you at those that should be following the little donkey on the way to Jerusalem and they're nowhere to be found and you shed a tear because you know who should be on that path with you? Where are you today? Who are you? I can't answer that for you. You say, well, preacher, you see me here every Sunday. You, hear, you see me here every Wednesday. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about disciples. I'm talking about followers, those who obey the will of the Father. And only you and God know the answer to that. And so my question is for you today, what is the cry from your heart at His coronation? Every head bowed and every eye closed. It's so simple. Even a child can understand this. Are you here today? And if Jesus were to come or if this was the last day you were going to spend on earth, you have no peace, no assurance, no eternal security whatsoever. And if you died today or if Jesus were to come, you're not saved or you're not sure you're saved. Would you just be man enough or woman enough to raise your hand? Nobody's going to come to you. Nobody's going to embarrass you. I just want to know as the pastor, nobody's looking around. This is a serious moment. But would you just be man enough, woman enough to raise your hand and let me pray for you? I'm not saved, pastor. I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me. Would you just slip up your hand? Anywhere in the building. You don't have to raise it very high. I'm looking. God bless you, sir. There in the middle. You can put your hand down. Anybody else? I'm not saved. I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me. I don't know what peace is. I don't know what victory is. Pray for me. One precious adult male has raised his hand. Is there anybody here you know you're saved and you're on your way to heaven and you're not ashamed of what Jesus has done in your life. Would you just raise your hand those that you have absolute assurance of your salvation today. Praise the Lord. So many hands. Are there any here that it's been a while since you've been close enough to let Him hear you? It's been a while since you've opened your mouth and thanked Him for what He did. How can people like blind Bartimaeus and the woman with the issue of blood and Lazarus, how could those people ever come to a place where they don't want to just be a few feet from the master? You know how it happens. It's human nature. It's what we war against every day. And good people, godly people with good intentions even, can find themselves at a distance. How many today would say, Pastor, I want to draw closer to him. I want to be so close that he hears my voice and I want to thank him for what he's done in my life. Would you just be, God bless you, sir. God bless you, ma'am. Hands, hands, hands all over the building, literally everywhere. God bless you. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Brother Arthur to sing one verse. If you need to come pray, you come pray. The precious adult male that raised his hand, if you want to come pray, we'll take the word of God 
We'll show you what it says. We'll pray with you. Brother Arthur, you sing. Holy Father, in Jesus' name, God, to the best of our ability, we've tried to preach what you put in our heart today. God, the two cries of the coronation. Lord, I'm so thankful that this coronation led to crucifixion. God, I couldn't pay my own way. I couldn't buy out my debt. Lord, I was a sinner who was in desperate need of a Savior. And Jesus, you accomplished that. You did it. And Lord, for your glory today, we say thank you. Lord, thank you for your love for us, your grace and your mercy bestowed to us, given to us in our salvation. We're thankful for what Palm Sunday really means. Lord, I pray for every person that's here, every life, every heart. Lord, I pray for people who are here today as observers. God, I even pray today for the skeptic. Lord, I pray that you would break pride, tenderize hearts. Lord, we pray for liberty to preach in this place. We pray for liberty of the Spirit to move. God, we ask that for the next few hours, that as people process what they've heard today, that Lord, if there be one who needs to be saved, Lord, that you would do the convincing that you would do the persuading and the Holy Ghost, you would open their eyes to see Christ for who he is. Lord, I am so incapable. I am unable to do anything to save anyone in this room. But Lord, for the hand that was raised, the two that were raised at eight o'clock, Lord, once again, we lay them at your feet and we ask you to do what only you can do. God, do it in your timing and your perfect pleasure and save those people who are lost. Lord, I pray for those that are backsliding. God, those that have petty sin in their life. Lord, it's distracting them. It's keeping them from walking close. who are at a great distance. And even today, their pride, their arrogance, and their sin keeps them from a right relationship. I pray that, God, you would break that spirit in those people. Lord, we pray that you would tenderize our hearts, keep us humble, keep our prayer life ebbed. And God, keep us right where you want us in your perfect will. We thank you for grace, mercy, and love, for Calvary, for crucifixion, and for what comes in just a few days, for resurrection. God, keep Easter and what it means ever in our hearts and minds this week as we remember the passion of our Lord and our Savior, our King, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name the church pray together. Amen.